Thanks for listening to the First Take podcast. I'm Simon King, an executive editor at First Word Pharma Plus. On this episode, my colleague Michael Flanagan joins me to discuss some of the week's most important news stories and look ahead to this weekend's ASCO meeting. Right at the end of last week, the FDA approved Amgen's Lumacras um, for the uh, treatment of uh, KRAS G12C mutated non-small cell lung cancer um, in patients who've received one prior therapy. Uh, Michael, this is a drug that um, everyone's been watching closely over the last couple of years. Um, mainly because of its mechanism of action and its target and and KRAS being uh one of those one of those targets which for many years was deemed you know undruggable so it's a it's a big deal this from an approval perspective yeah you know i think it it uh it just shows what what science can do you know when people talk about KRAS being undruggable for so many years it's not undruggable it's just uh it's more difficult to drug. It's taken a bit of time um, to get there. Yeah, you know, it's 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 just a puzzle that needs uh, needs figuring out. Um, and so credit to Amgen, credit to Marathi is another one that that's coming along and uh, seems to be working relatively well in early testing. And uh, obviously, that's it's a big deal, and um, not just from a scientific perspective, but also from potentially anyway a commercial perspective, <laughs> um, because. So they got it approved in non-small cell lung cancer, which is obviously a, a huge market. Um, so even if they're not going to be treating all these patients, they're going to be treating a sub-segment of that. It's obviously still a huge uh, commercial opportunity. So yeah, you know, we'll see um, how things go. They they priced it about in line. Sounds like with other targeted agents, um, and analysts are expecting something up to like two billion, you know, in peak sales just in lung cancer. Um, and then the questions will be, number one, whether it can go earlier. So right now it's approved after uh, at least one line of therapy. So the question will be, can it go earlier in lung cancer? And can you know can it go into other KRAS-driven tumor types? Uh, colorectal being one that's been talked about a lot. And the, you know, so that'll determine just how big slash massive uh, this drug in this class will be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, talking to talking to the point you just made, um, I think it's about thirteen percent of uh, U.S. Um, non-small cell lung cancer patients that carry this particular KRAS G12C mutation. So obviously, you know, that does reduce the size of the market. You know, I think the other thing is, you know, there's been a lot of discussion this week since the approval. Um, moving it into first line and then potentially using it in combination um with other um other agents potentially with with um immunotherapy with a, a pd1 inhibitor such as keytruda i mean it's interesting i think you know amgen's done a great job um you know kind of getting this to market you know the approval has come sort of three months uh earlier than expected I think also if you look, you mentioned like Marathi Therapeutics, they've got a similar product in development. 
I think off the top of my head that these these products kind of went into clinical development at a very, very similar time. And Amgen has obviously, you know, used its, um, maybe it's, it's kind of extra muscle, it's financial firepower, but it's certainly moved ahead in, in the sort of the phase two studies to, to get an approval, um, you know, approval now secured, I, I believe, I, I'm correct in saying before Marathi's actually uh, submitted its agent to the FDA. But I think the interesting thing this week that there was, you know, having now had got the first KRAS inhibitor to reach the market, there was a little bit of, of conversation amongst analysts that maybe it could be the second generation uh, KRAS inhibitors. I think Eli Lilly has got one in development. I think Roche has got one in development. A little bit of chatter this week about maybe potential improvements and, um, you know, the jury still being out on on quite what, how well um, Lumacras will will work in combination with other agents. But anyway, it's a it's an important breakthrough, as you said, from a, a scientific uh, and from a, a potentially commercial perspective. Of course, the other KRAS um, uh, inhibitor sort of news this week, speaking about Marathi, they signed the deal um, with uh, Zalab in uh, China um, for their compound to be marketed by that company in the Chinese mainland. So that's, you know, something else to, to kind of keep in mind how these uh, drugs are going to be used in markets outside of the US in the longer term. Um, sticking with Amgen, uh, they also announced this week that they are uh, paying $400 million up front um, under a deal with uh, Kaiowa Kirin to co-develop and commercialize um, uh, that company's experimental drug, which is currently known as KHK4083. It's an OX40 targeting monoclonal antibody, um, which is primarily being uh, developed for atopic dermatitis, which is obviously another sort of huge market where we're now seeing lots of companies trying to get into that space on the back of um, Sanofi and Regeneron's Depixent being such a um, such a huge commercial success. Yeah, big week for Amgen, but uh, it's interesting that they are going with this um, this Ax forty targeting monoclonal antibody because, well, for a number of reasons. Uh, it's interesting. Number one, because Kiowa Kirin is a you know is a company that they've worked with extensively for many many years so i guess it's not surprising that they are partnering up on this particular program but the the target itself is <clears throat> is very interesting um obviously do uh, atopic dermatitis is an area that's just been sort of revolutionized by dupixent um which targets what is it il4 and 13 i believe I um but the success of that drug, and I think it was almost like $4 billion drug last year, it's just going to, you know, draw in uh, competitors. And um, OX40 emerging as a potential, you know, competitive pathway is interesting because it's been thought of as an immuno-oncology target for a while now. It hasn't really worked out. But the fact that it's now seemingly emerging as a, um, you know, sort of an allergic uh, conditions uh, option is interesting and and it really is because Sanofi recently purchased Kimab for 1.1 billion 
uh, in part to get its hands on their fully human monoclonal antibody against OX40 ligand, slightly different than the OX40 um, receptor, which I believe is what uh, Amgen's slash Kiowa Kieran's product is going after. But, you know, same pathway. Um, and very interesting, they both have shown in early slash mid-stage testing that it, they seem to work. These antibodies seem to really work in um, treating atopic dermatitis. Uh, these were all, both of them, for the, the Kimab slash Sanofi and Kiwa Kirin um, Amgen products, they were just top-line readouts. So you can't really compare and contrast really much of anything at this point. But as soon as those full data sets are made available, people are obviously going to take a, a pretty hard look at them and see how they, they match up. Um, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, where these where these can fit in. Um, and uh, it's a huge market, but Dupixent is is the uh, the king of the, the the hill at the moment. Yeah. Um, I mean, we'll I, guess, I guess it's interesting that Sanofi, who obviously you know co-market Dupixent, have gone after this target. That you know that would seem to be a kind of a uh, a validating kind of move, um, seeing as that they've now got you know some experience in the space. I guess the other thing that we haven't talked about is the fact that. Um, you know, in, in the atopic dermatitis market, we're expecting, or we certainly had been expecting, you know, a big splash to be made by the Jack inhibitors. Um, and, you know, depending on, on, on how regulators kind of, um, view the safety profiles of those, certainly in relation to, to Pfizer's older Jack inhibitor, uh, Zeljans. It, you know, they, I guess what I'm saying is there could be more room than maybe previously anticipated for alternative mechanisms of action in the longer term. And, I, and obviously we are talking a few years away here because this is phase two data, but certainly suggests that that the docs 40 maps could play a potential role, I guess. Yeah. And the one thing I should point out there is uh, in the early testing, and that's where we still are with these Ox 40 agents there there have been some safety um, or at least tolerability issues that have emerged fever and chills um, were the two that really stood out in phase one testing but you know amgen saying that they're working on dosing and it's just a first dose issue so you know it, it's something to keep an eye on i mean fever and chills especially if it's just a first dose thing certainly doesn't compare with some of the more um you know, problematic uh, question marks that have been arisen with with jack inhibitors, but it's just something to keep an eye on. Sure, and I guess that also speaks to the fact that Dupixent is it has has been so well received, not only because of, of its its efficacious profile, but it seems to be a, a very clean um, and relatively safe agent as well, which uh, you know seems to have played a, a key role in it becoming entrenched in that market so quickly. Um, yeah. In terms of other news in the, in the last week or so, um, we spoke about EQRX um, a, a few podcasts ago. They had um, announced some uh, positive phase three data uh, for their um, EGFR um, inhibitor in EGFR mutated non-small cell lung cancer. Um, it was head-to-head -head data against one of the older products in that class, AstraZeneca's Iressa. But the company was sort of pitching the data um, 
as evidence that that, that drug could be used in the first line setting. Uh, and for those of, of you listening who don't know, EQRX um, is a company that launched about 18 months ago and with the kind of the, the strategy of bringing um, drugs to market in well-established uh, drug classes, but but launching them at significantly lower prices. It was interesting to see this week that, you know, in quick succession, um, their partner, Seastone Pharmaceuticals, um, which is a Chinese company, uh, announced that uh, in a phase three study, uh, the PDL one inhibitor that the two companies are co-developing, which is a drug called Sugar Malamab, um, has met its primary endpoint of progression-free survival when used as a consolidation therapy in patients with advanced or unresectable stage three non-small cell lung cancer without disease progression after either concurrent or sequential chemo radiotherapy. Um, and it's interesting because this is actually the first PD-1 or PDL one to achieve this uh, particular clinical benchmark. Um, interesting that it's not a PD-1 or a PDL one that is, uh, you know, come from a big pharma company uh, is, is one observation that I'd make. Um, this is a very, very similar setting to AstraZeneca's to Griso, which is approved for stage three um, unresectable non-small cell lung cancer, but is only approved for use after concurrent chemotherapy. So it's a similar but slightly different setting. But nevertheless, um, I think this is a really kind of interesting development, particularly in the context uh, that EQRX has got this, uh, you know, this mandate that it's that it wants to launch these drugs at significantly uh, lower prices. And we've, we've, you know, there's been quite a lot of chat recently about the potential to sort of commoditize the PD-1 or PDL one inhibitor class. So I, I think this is definitely something that we're going to have to kind of keep our eyes on, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of money involved here. And, you know, just shape, I know EQRX, they're not talking about shaving you know, just a tiny bit of price off there. Their whole thing is we want to cut prices. <laughs> so that would be, that would mean a lot of money at stake. I don't know if Merck and Bristol Myers and, uh, you know, AstraZeneca and Roche, whether they're sweating yet or, or not, but uh, they might be. So, so I think the really interesting thing here is when EQRX uh, sort of went public with this goal uh, last January, so we're, we are talking about 18 months that, you know, these are, you know, these are lofty ambitions. Uh, and I think, to be honest, I, I think, you know, there's a there's a sort of a, a very well-respected management team there. Um, but I think, you know, irrespective of that, there is this kind of, you know, there is this sort of perception maybe that, yeah, it's great to sort of you know, talk the talk, but, you know, can you walk the walk? Are you actually going to, to be able to do this? And I think what's kind of fascinating is that actually, you know, maybe 18 months ago, everyone was sort of thinking, well, yeah, it's great. You know, we'll see what happens. Maybe it'd be a couple of years down the line. We've actually reached a situation, you know, 18 months on where, you know, they're now in a position to put these, these two drugs, you know, a pdl one inhibitor, 
and an EGFR inhibitor in front of regulators. So we're not actually in the grand scheme of things that far away potentially from from sort of seeing whether they're actually going to be able to come good on their promise of uh, you know significantly cheaper prices. And obviously, as we near that time, hopefully we'll kind of have some more concrete discussion from the company on exactly how they're going to achieve that. Because at the moment, I guess you could say it's a little bit abstract. They're talking about efficiencies. I think the thing I will say, having spoken to the company recently, you know, they they have really talked up their ability to identify promising drugs in mid to late stage development that they think can come to the market and compete with the best in class agents. And I think the data that we've seen in both the EGFR and the PDL1 space definitely speaks to that. I mean, um, this is this is interesting because uh, this PDL1 has kind of got there first. Um, and actually, a, an interesting side point is Pfizer's actually um, in license the marketing rights to this this checkpoint inhibitor in mainland China. So uh, Pfizer has has itself been looking around. I think you know it's fair to say looking for for maybe a checkpoint inhibitor that's a bit more effective than Vivencio, and they obviously some see something in this product as well. Um, but yeah, and and and. and you know, I think things are going to progress quite quickly from here. So it's it's definitely going to be interesting to watch. And we're going to hopefully see some more data for their EGFR inhibitor at ASCO, which brings us on to that as our sort of last topic today. ASCO obviously starts tomorrow, June the 4th, carries on over the weekend and into the early part of next week. Um, virtual format again for the second year in a row hopefully this time next year uh, at least some of us will be going to to chicago in person fingers crossed um michael what what, what is it that stands out for you in terms of the the big stories that you know the big narratives that people need to be sort of looking for this weekend if they're following what's happening at, at asco sure i think i think the big one the one that really stands out is the move upstream for uh, targeted get therapies, but especially immunotherapies beyond the, you know, beyond the metastatic um, stage and moving into the earlier stages of, of treatment. Um, that's really, you know, it's a theme that's been um, prevalent for, you know, months, if not basically a year now. Um, just in general, but I think that this ASCO meeting seems to be one where there's a confluence of of data events there to essentially it seems like support the the fact that these um, these certain tumor types anyway I know lung cancer renal cell carcinoma and breast cancer um, and perhaps melanoma they are um, the the paradigm may be shifting and shifting quickly with the advent of these um, new agents and move into the adjuvant and neoadjuvant setting. I think that's the one sort of big ticket narrative that I think everybody's probably going to be talking about. So one of the big data sets that we've already seen, it, it, well, we've, we've now seen the late breaking abstracts as well because they were released earlier today. But one of, 
one of the big data sets that we've you know we've been looking at for the past couple of weeks is the data from the Impower 010 study, which is looking at tocentric in adjuvant uh, non-small cell lung cancer um, used after surgery and adjuvant chemotherapy. Um, I know you spoke to a key opinion leader last week, and um, these were disease-free survival data. But it feels like, some because we ran some surveys as well, and I the, the feedback, you know, towards the data seemed to be positive. These were surveys to oncologists that, that that focus on lung cancer. It feels like there's, you know, there's been a bit of debate this year about not using, you know, these adjuvant studies obviously take longer to to, to produce mature overall survival data. So things like disease-free survival are being used as primary endpoints. It feels like that there is a kind of a growing comfort with that concept. Would you agree? In certain, yeah. I guess, in certain tumor types, in in particular. Yeah, you know, there's there's been talk like is pathological complete response is that enough? And then you know, there's the uh, triple negative breast cancer situation where FDA was clearly not impressed by Keytruda's uh, PCR results. But you know, these results that we're seeing here at, at ASCO with disease-free survival, it just seems to be you know, the KOLs I've spoken to, including one last week about this Empower 010, you know, they're they're very impressed. They're, they're ready to, uh, I think, a lot of them anyway, ready to, uh, to start using these, you know, to start using these drugs in this, in this early stage setting. Um, and it is important to, to note that, you know, this is different than metastatic because these patients are, at a point where cure is the goal, you know, it's it's not just to try and add a few months of of quality life or anything like that. I mean, they're talking about decades of uh, survival difference, um, and so just so there's two parts to that. Number one, it means that the safety profile or the bar for safety is higher, but it also means that. If you are increasing disease-free survival at, let's say, a three-point time, a three-year time point, if you're increasing that by even just a small amount, that's cure, and that those are people who are going to live for years and decades, um, likely. So, uh, it, it's an interesting dynamic, and obviously, it's it's. Uh, I think physicians are are pretty interested uh, and pretty excited about it, based on you know the ones I've talked to. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we've mentioned tocentric there in adjuvant non-small cell lung cancer. Um, there's some data that's been that's come out in abstract form earlier today uh, that showed that um, the adjuvant use of Merck's Keytruda um, led to a 32% reduction in the risk of disease recurrence or death versus placebo in uh in patients with fully resected um intermediate to high risk renal cell carcinoma um and the other big adjuvant study isn't actually an immunotherapy this is a targeted treatment it's a parp inhibitor um uh, astrazeneca and merck's linparza in um in adjuvant uh, BRCA mutation breast cancer um, we also we've seen some you know some impressive data there. I mean, my my kind of takeaway from having sort of seen the abstracts earlier today, the late breakers, is that all of these data sets um, in the kind of adjuvant setting uh, could be 
uh, meaningful. I mean, obviously, we've got to wait and see how regulators, um, you know, work with the data. But I, I, I certainly think that, you know, they are, we're going to start, you know, going to start to see um, treatment change in these earlier stage settings. Obviously, one of the questions is, and it, it will vary by tumor type, but, you know, what impact does this potentially have on on the use of these immunotherapies in particular in the in the metastatic setting where they're you know that's where they've been used um you know sort of overwhelmingly to date um i guess the other thing that's probably worth mentioning that i i think has actually gone under the radar a little bit is the um is the relativity 047 study which is um BMS's trial, Bristol Myers Squibb's trial of Obdivo and Relatlimab uh, versus Obdivo monotherapy in advanced melanoma. Um, with Relatlimab being a, a potential first-in-class LAG3 inhibitor, um, the data for that combination in terms of efficacy being a little bit lower than what we've seen in the past with Obdivo and Yervoy, but with notably fewer severe side effects. So, I, you know, based on the feedback, you know, I've had from oncologists this week, I think this could be a sort of a third treatment option for metastatic melanoma. But I guess the, the bigger picture sort of takeaway is we could soon have our first, uh, you know, the third approved checkpoint inhibitor target and and I, it feels a little bit like having spent the last or much of the last five years focused on what's going to be the next checkpoint inhibitor target this news has gone slightly under the radar maybe i guess i guess what we need to see now is you know does this work in other tumor types that's the key right how yeah. how broadly used can can uh, can lag three work i guess exactly i mean we talked about uh, act 40 earlier in this in this podcast and you know that's just one of many many you know targets that have uh, emerged and gotten popular and then sort of just didn't didn't pan out so yeah the fact that lag three seems to have panned out is a big deal i think it's gotten overwhelmed by the you know this this narrative about immunotherapy moving into earlier stage setting just because that's such it's such a big deal and so many patients will be affected there's so much money involved i can sort of see why the you know relativity 047 and lag 3 may be getting a little a little bit less um pub that than they normally probably would have for a meeting like this um but we'll see i, I think that if if they can show that it works beyond melanoma then you know for sure people will start talking a lot more about it, I think. Yeah. Um, we'll see. Well, it will be interesting to see how um, ASCO in its second year of a virtual sort of incarnation pans out this weekend, because what, some of the feedback we had from oncologists who attended last year's virtual meeting uh, was the fact that there was a kind of a, maybe more of a focus on the headline a couple of headline uh, sort of clinical data readouts um, that they felt maybe took the spotlight away from um, some other clinical data sets. So it will be interesting to see, you know, how, I guess, um, you know, how people react to, uh, to ASCO as all the sessions uh, take place over the next couple of days. Um, anyway, um, Michael, uh, thanks as always, and um, 
no doubt we will be um, speaking again next week, where I guess part of our conversation will probably be a kind of a post-mortem of ASCO and maybe looking at um, some some clinical data readouts that maybe haven't caught our attention yet, but, you know, do over the next couple of days. Sounds good.